Hello and welcome to Hell. No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. (laughs) See what I did there? Welcome to Hell. Have you guys ever watched Final Destination 5? I thought I had, but then I watched it the other night and I was like, hold up. I've never seen this one. I've only seen one through four. I won't give anything away, but the ending is cool. And uh, I'm hoping to see more FDs come out. By FDs, of course, I mean Final Destinations. Anyways, I was going to talk about a Canadian case from Alberta known as the Brentwood Five Massacre, where five college students were brutally murdered during a college house party. And I still will cover that case, um, maybe next week. But I switched cases um, as I was researching camping, hiking cases, and one caught my attention because I haven't heard it covered before. I did find a good documentary done on it um, by Crime Stories, which I will, of course, link it. And I also found a lot of news articles on it as well. So there was quite a bit of information. This is a, a pretty big case in Canada. Um, I will put out a warning for this week's episode because it does have to do with children. And just before I get into that part, I will give you another warning so you can skip ahead or maybe you'd be more comfortable just sitting this week out. The choice is yours. This case takes place in British Columbia, Canada in the last month of summer of 1982 when a family of four set out for a remote camping trip in Wells Gray National Park, about a seven-hour drive north of Vancouver and only four hours from Kelowna, where the family's from. This park is Canada's backcountry camping at its finest with huge powerful cascading waterfalls, swimming, boating, fishing, caves, hiking trails, extinct volcanoes, mineral springs, lava beds, glaciers, and tons of wildlife. Home to many Canadian animals such as grizzly bears, yikes, black bears, cougars, wolves, mountain goats, lynx, wolverines, bobcats, moose, caribou, and deer, just to name a few. It is a rugged and beautifully remote place to camp, and I can see why the family was drawn to it. Lots of fresh air, water, and space to be had. I have actually been camping in northern British Columbia, and it is a totally different experience than I've ever had in any other country. It's so vast, and the land itself is just like incredibly powerful not to mention grizzly bears august 2nd in 1982 44 year old bob johnson his wife of over 20 years 41 year old jackie johnson and their two daughters 13 year old janet and 11 year old karen jumped in the family car packed with their camping gear and headed towards the park september was only a month away and the girls would have to start back at school the warm canadian air would start to get crisp and the leaves would start to turn color on the trees And it would just be, you know, beautiful fall time. But unfortunately, the family wouldn't get to see it. 
They arrived just outside the entrance of the Wells Gray Provincial Park and set up camp at Bear Creek Camp, which wasn't in the Provincial Park, but it's a designated remote um, camp outside of the park nearing to the town Clearwater. That night, Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, met them at the campsite to join in on the family camping. George and Edith had never been to this provincial park before, and they, they were keen to see it because it's just so beautiful. Three years earlier, George and Edith had retired from their jobs and bought a camper to put on the back of their truck. They just wanted to live out their golden years doing what they loved, and that meant being with family and being outdoors. They also had a 10-foot tin boat, which they traveled with on top of the camper, so they were ready for boating, fishing, and spending afternoons on the great Canadian waters. Two weeks later, on August 16th, Bob's employer noticed that reliable Bob, who had worked at the lumberyard for 25 years and had never missed a day, was not back at work after the camping trip. His employer didn't immediately assume something terrible had happened. He just thought maybe it's car troubles or they were held up by something. There were no cell phones or texting back then, and, and he knew that they were camping remotely, so access to something like a payphone probably wasn't a possibility. And if the family was dealing with their vehicle breaking down, then they would be busy sorting that out, and maybe calling his boss wasn't his first priority. But by August 23rd, when they hadn't heard from Bob, now they were really concerned and reported him missing to the RCMP, which for my non-Canadian listeners is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. A search of the park was conducted, but they turned up nothing. September 12th, a mushroom picker was hiking in the woods, foraging for wild mushrooms. As someone who has um, picked and sold morels, a delicatessen mushroom, in early summer, I think June or July, in northern British Columbia, I can say it wasn't morels that this mushroom picker was was hunting for because it was September. So if I was going to guess, I would say mazatakis or chanterelles. But to really make sure, I put out a call to my sister, who is a Canadian fungus enthusiast. And she said that mazatakis would be more October and chanterelles would be September. Most people won't care about that information, but to those who hunt and pick fungus, you get me. It is literally a subculture, and maybe one day I will do an entire episode on fungus as I am deeply fascinated with it. Uh, I, I even got a guest speaker in mind, actually. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay, so September 12th, a mushroom picker, most likely picking chanterelles, stumbles across a burnt out car that was just off a logging road, 13 miles from the campsite the family had been camping at, and the car matched the description of the missing family's car. He noted that the car was extremely burnt and the driver's side door was open. The picker promptly reports it to police and before long the police arrive to check it out. They look into the back seat and now realize they need to call in a crime scene investigation team. Soon the team is combing over the scene. There were bullet casings around the car. The car itself was so badly burned up they suspect an accelerant must have been used. Forensic photographer Harvard Boswell was called to the scene that day to photograph the evidence 
from the scene and the scene itself. Side note, how do I get a job like that? Anyways, alongside Boswell was forensic pathologist Daryl McNaughton, Constable Gerald Dalen, lead investigator on the case Sergeant Michael Eastham, and many more police officers assisting in the investigation. In the back seat, they found charred human remains. The remains were burnt so badly that as the pathologist was trying to collect them, they were turning into dust. The car was used as a makeshift crematorium. They find the remains are from four adults, but because they had been in such a hot fire for so long, all of the remains that they collected from the backseat of that car could fit into a small paper bag. They then manage to pry the trunk of the car open and find two more skeletal remains, these ones belonging to children. What an absolutely horrific crime scene this must have been. Officers are still searching the area and notice a freshly cut tree along the pathway used to move the car into the forest. And they find in the car a burnt up axe head, meaning whoever did this purposefully cleared a path so they could hide the car in the forest. Amongst the remains is one skull left in a good enough condition to examine. And not only do they find a bullet hole in the skull, but inside the skull, they find a 22 caliber bullet. As for the two bodies in the trunk, they confirm through dental records it is in fact 11-year-old Karen and 13-year-old Janet Johnson. They conclude the four remains in the back seat were Bob and Jackie Johnson and George and Edith Bentley. The entire family brutally murdered on a family camping trip. The community was shocked and extremely saddened by what had happened as nothing like this had ever happened there before. The police start frantically looking for George and Edith's camper van because whoever had it was most likely the killer. They deploy police helicopters, tracking dogs, and go door to door in the nearby town of Clearwater, showing people the pictures of the camper van, asking if anyone had seen it, and you know, they, they did get a bit of luck. One guy they asked said that he had seen it. He had seen the camper van in that car at the Bear Creek um, camping ground, which is where the family was camping, but police didn't know that until right now. Hoping they could gather more evidence, they head up to the camp spot, and in the fire pit, they find a cooking pot that matches the Johnson's family's cooking pot that they had seen in photos of the family. In the river beside the camp, they see bottles of unopened beer as if placed there to keep them cool in the water, and that beer is the same kind that Bob Johnson drank, so it was most likely left there by Bob to cool his beer. Around the campsite, they find six 22 caliber shell casings. Police keep this information closed and do not notify any media or public, but they are certain they found the murder site, and where they had found the burned up car was location two of that scene, and that wasn't where the murders had taken place. Little did they know there was another location to look for evidence. 
police start receiving mass amounts of tips on sightings of the camper van um, that the public were calling in. One of these tips said the camper van had been seen two provinces over in Saskatchewan and the drivers were two unkempt French Canadian males who were seen in a restaurant getting out of the camper van. Police have composite sketches made of the two men and pin up the photos everywhere, asking if anyone knows them or has seen them. Police managed to track the camper van through public sightings. So people are calling in, they're saying, we've seen it here, we've seen it here. So police are tracking it, um, and but they lose track at the Ontario-Quebec border, which that makes sense to police as, as Quebec is a French province in Canada. Um, so half a year goes by and they have completely lost all tips. Nobody's calling in anymore. So they have an idea. Um, they have an idea that will drum up exposure for the case. The investigators team up with a documentary crime show and create a reenactment of the crime to spread the word far and wide about what people should be on the lookout for. They even had an exact replica of the Bentley's camper van brought in with even the boat on top to film the reenactment. Just after the show had aired and it was fresh in the public eyes again, Sergeant Michael Eastham has an idea to now put signs on the replica of the camper van and drive it across the country on the exact route that the sightings of it were. The signs read something like, have you seen this camper van? If so, please call police with any information you may have as it's it's part of a, uh, it's involved in a murder investigation. And it works. One year after the discovery of the burnt-up car, a mechanic in Windsor, Ontario, calls police to tell them he had seen that camper van and it was driven by two French guys who had a 22 caliber rifle. They had come into his shop to inquire about painting the camper. The mechanic told him, like, no, dude, I don't do that. Um, maybe try going across the border to Detroit and maybe someone over there can help you. Because in Windsor, Detroit is like right on the border. You're like minutes away. You can be in Windsor, Canada, and then you can be in Detroit, Michigan, USA within like no time at all. It's very close. Right as police think they are headed in the right direction again, they receive a phone call that a burnt up caravan matching the description of the Bentleys is found in the forest near Wells Gray Provincial Park back up in British Columbia where the investigation started and it even had a 22 caliber bullet hole in the driver's side door. This was the Bentley's camper van. How did the camper van end up in the very location they started looking for it a year ago and was it even two French guys they were looking for? They realized they were looking for a local person now, not two French guys at all. Faced with the realization that the entire year of investigating needed to be scrapped, they start from ground zero again, going door to door in Clearwater to ask residents questions again. But this time, things get interesting. Police officers knock on the door of a couple's home. And when police are talking to the couple, the wife makes a nonchalant comment. She says, quote, tell them what Dave said, unquote. Police perk up. And we're probably like, yeah, tell us what Dave said. The police learned from the couple that a guy in the area named Dave had asked her husband how to register a vehicle with a bullet hole in it. 
hmm, quite suspicious. As police never released that information of the bullet hole in the camper van, they became very curious on this Dave guy and set out to look for him. 23-year-old David William Shearing had been living in the area on his parents' ranch during the time that the murders had happened. And he had even been one of the people police spoke to during the first door-to-door questioning early on in the investigation. Soon after this, Dave left the area and moved much further north to a town called Tumbler Ridge. I have actually been to Tumbler Ridge as uh, it was the nearest town to the Morel mushroom picking spot that I picked at and it's a very small town so anyone looking for anyone here would surely find them fast. As they were looking for Dave, police get a call about him but it wasn't about the Johnson and Bentley murders. It was about a hit and run that had happened years earlier in the Wells Gray Park area. And the person who had run someone over, and in a few reports, it said killed a person, but in other reports, it didn't say killed. So I'm gonna say allegedly killed someone because I'm not too sure. So this person was on the road, someone was driving a vehicle, ran them over, they may or may not have died, that person who hit that person just kept driving and it was never reported so it was a like an open investigation of a hit and run this caller was saying that it was dave shearing driving the vehicle that night of the hit and run who hit the person so police put this in their back pocket to use it later Police find David Shearing in Tumblr Ridge as he was already known to police there after being pulled over one night with $40,000 of stolen tools in his truck. He was charged for this but was released on conditions, so I don't think he did any jail time. Police devise a plan. Officer Ron German from Tumblr Ridge is the one who pulled Shearing over that night he was caught with the tools. And it was this officer who approaches Shearing and asks him if he would like to come in for a chat, but didn't say anything about being under arrest for suspicion of murder. And most likely, Shearing had thought it had something to do with the tools incident, which is, that's small peanuts to him. That's not six murders. Little did Shearing know, police had a plan. The nearest facility police can interview Shearing was two hours away in a town called Dawson's Creek, which, hey, I have also been there, and no, it's not where the popular 90s TV show was filmed. Anyways, Shearing sits in the front seat of the car with Officer German with no handcuffs on or anything, just to make him feel comfortable, because they don't want him talking until the interview. Man, that would have been a long car ride. Weird, a long, weird car ride. The interview takes place on November 19th, 1983 with Sergeant Eastham and Constable Libel. When Shearing entered the interview room, he was noticeably nervous. Police noticed he was sweating a lot and he seemed to be looking around the room as if he were looking to find the reason he was there before any questions started. Sergeant Eastham asked him first about the unsolved hit and run incident a few years earlier and Shearing immediately seemed to relax. Like he was like, oh, whew. Um, Not only that, but he confessed. He was like, oh yeah, yeah, that was me. (laughs) So he was thinking that's all 
this was, that they had just brought him in for this unsolved hit and run. So they started asking him about the Bentley Johnson murders. And part of that questioning was Sergeant Eastham asked him, like, did you hear where the Johnson and Bentley, the Johnson and Bentley family was murdered? And he's, and Shearing says, oh yeah, up in Bear Creek camp, wasn't it? This was a very interesting to police that he just said that because they hadn't released that information to the public. But it is possible in a small town, people were talking about it as, you know, there was one witness that stated he saw the family's camper van and in car at that that camp spot before the murders. So maybe he had heard it from from them or, you know, maybe because he knew exactly where they were murdered. So they start gunning for a confession. At this point, the interview swiftly moves into a full-on interrogation and police turn up the heat. They start slamming him with questions and accusations, trying to trip him up and, and just mentally exhaust him into just giving up the truth. And it works. Somewhere between Sharon chain-smoking cigarettes and being hammered with questions, he starts to cry and he breaks and he confesses. When Sergeant Eastham asks him, you know, why did you do it? Why did you do it? He responds, I don't know. Shearing then tells police that he had seen the family camping at the Bear Creek camp when he was driving past and uh, he wanted to rob them. So he said he waited until nighttime and went in with his 22 caliber rifle as the family sat around the campfire. He said he shot Bob, then George, then Jackie, then Edith, then went into the tent. And this is a, I'm going to warn you now if this has to do with the children. So if you want to pause, maybe skip ahead a minute, do that right now. He then said he went into the tent and shot the two little girls so he could steal the camper van and the boat along with other things. Then he said he put all six in the car, four in the back seat and two in the trunk and then torched the car using gasoline after he drove it away from the campsite. He also admitted to cleaning up the campsite of all the family's things. The reason he burned the camper van later, so he admitted to stealing it, but then he said it was harder than he thought thought to register it because it was stolen and had a bullet hole in it. So he then drove that out and burned that later after storing it, I believe, on his parents' property. Sergeant Eastham knew there must have been more to the story, but they got what they needed. They got that confession and, you know, maybe he'd come back on a later day to to try to get the full truth. So they had their confession. That's what they were after and they got it. But it didn't seem to fit that Shearing would kill an entire family for a simple robbery. He could have done that when the family went out hiking or were sleeping. And Sergeant Easton believed that there was a sexual element that Shearing wasn't giving up. But, you know, like I said, they've got that confession. They then take Shearing back to the scene of the crime to show them exactly what he did that night. And he showed them where he laid in the bush and watched the family as they sat around the campfire, cooked meals, and laughed with each other. He showed them how he entered the campsite, how, you know, where he shot, where they were when he shot them. He showed them everything. 
The fact that he stalked and watched this family as if hunting wild animals is so malevolent and it just shows what a twisted, sick mind he has. This the this family and Shearing did not know each other. You know, they had never met before. They had no feuds between them. So why did he kill them in such a brutal way just to rob them? It didn't make sense, but we will soon find out. Shearing also took police to his parents' property where he was living when he had committed those murders. And he gave them the 22 caliber rifle he had used. And he also gave them stuff that he had stolen from the Bentley and Johnson family. In the spring of April 16th, 1984, two years after the family was brutally gunned down on their family camping trip, David Shearing was set to go to trial. But before the trial could begin, he pleads guilty to six counts of second degree murder. Probably because he knew if he sat in front of a judge and jury and was cross-examined, the full truth might spill out. Or perhaps he thought he would get a harsher sentence if they proved it was first-degree murder, which I reckon they could have. They probably had a really good shot at that, and I think Shearing knew that. That same day, he was sentenced to six concurrent life sentences with a minimum of 25 years with no possibility of parole. This doesn't make sense to me as concurrent means he will do all six life sentences at the same time. So the fact he killed six people or one person, it doesn't really seem to matter in his sentencing because if he were to kill one person in first degree murder, I'm pretty sure that you could also get life for that. But he killed six people and he gets the same sentence, 25 years. This, however, is the first time in Canadian history that the maximum penalty for second-degree murder had ever been issued. But at the same time, he could potentially be freed by the age of 50. So to me, this doesn't seem harsh enough. But anyways, Sergeant Eastham just had to know the full truth. So he set up an interview with Shearing after his sentencing to ask him what really happened that night at Bear Creek Camp near Wells Gray National Park. I guess having already been sentenced, Shearing felt like he had nothing to lose by telling him everything as you can't be tried for the same murders twice. So I'm going to give a warning again um, right now as this has to do with children, sexual assault, and murder. So you might want to skip ahead maybe two minutes. Shearing tells Eastham that he had been watching the little girls and he just had to have them and he was willing to kill everyone to get to them. He saw the family camping and watched them for a few days having sexual fantasies about the two little girls Janet and Karen. He had been stalking the campsite army crawling around in the bush and spying on them and soon enough he said he just he had he had to have them which is disgusting. As the sun was setting on August 10th, 1982, eight days into the family's camping trip, Sharon walked into the camp with his 22 caliber rifle. He shot all the adults as he had previously said, but this time he tells Eastham that he went into the girls' tent as they were getting ready for bed and told them that there's a dangerous biker gang around and that their parents and grandparents had just run to get help, but he was there to protect them. After Sharon loaded up Bob, Jackie, George, and Edith's body into the back seat of their family car, he covered them with a blanket 
and then got into the girl's tent with them. He then gets the girls to go and sit in the front seat of the car. Now, I'm not sure if he cleaned up the campsite that day or if he came back and and um, and cleared off the family's stuff later. I don't know. He did that eventually. But once the girls were in the car, Shearing drove them to a fishing cabin in the area and kept them there for a week to fulfill his sexual fantasies and repeatedly sexually assault them. Oh, it's just so terrible. It's just such a terrible crime. He got spooked by a prison guard who came knocking to tell him um, not to worry. So this prison guard sees this fishing cabin he knocks on the door he says hey i'm supervising some prisoners that are fishing here for the day um nothing to worry about i just wanted to let you know that and this spooked sharing so after this incident he moved the two girls to his parents property on august 16th he walked little 11 year old karen out into the woods told her to turn around while he urinated as she turned around he shot the little girl in the head what a fucking monster this actually makes me feel sick knowing someone is capable of such evil acts the next day on august 17th he does the same to 13 year old janet i can't help but think how scared janet must have been the night before she was murdered as all she knew was that her little sister left with this monster and never returned david shearing is pure evil and disgusting in every way and use of the word possible he's just pure pure evil he said he then loaded the two girls into the trunk of the car drove it out into the woods poured gasoline all over it and lit it on fire so that means that shearing would have had in his possession the entire time he was holding the girls captive the family car with their parents and grandparents dead bodies in the back seat because he burned the whole family together sergeant eastham located the prison guard who was responsible for supervising the prisoner's fishing trip um, and he did this to ask him like hey did you knock on this um, fishing door on this day and, and tell this tell david shearing this thing and the prison guard was like yes i definitely did that and he definitely was there and the guard said he had no idea that two scared little girls were being kept quiet and hidden behind the door sergeant eastham even hiked to the cabin and found jj carved into the inside of the cabin which he thinks stands for janet johnson and were carved by janet herself while she was being held captive there after he had been sent after he had been sentenced with the six second degree murder charges the community wanted him to receive the death penalty like people were outraged and they wanted him dead so imagine if this would have got brought out in court shearing changed his surname once in prison to his mother's maiden name enise i'm not sure why but if i were to guess he did that in case the truth got out about um child rapist and murderer david shearing he would have another name to hide behind because fellow prisoners would most likely beat him to death had they known what he had done whilst in prison in 1995 he married a woman from prince albert saskatchewan heather anise which is like okay but oh does she know what he's capable of like i'm like what does she 
think that he's in there for who knows what he told her about the crime but i'm sure there she would have saw it in the news September 2008 marked 24 years of his sentence and Shearing, now Anise, was up for parole, but they noped him right out of there saying he was still having violent sexual fantasies and he had not went or completed the sex offender treatment program and to them this shows no sign of Shearing even trying to cure his violent sexual fantasies and he will most likely reoffend. He tried again for parole in 2012, but was also denied as the community started a petition against his release and the parole board noped him again. He wasn't done yet though. He tried again in 2014, but this time the petition got even more signatures and he withdrew his request. I found an article about, a, so it would have been published about a year ago, saying that he still is imprisoned um, at the age of 61. So thankfully, the family of this fam, the, the family of the family that he murdered are, are fighting really hard to keep him in prison. So you know what? Enough about that guy. He sucks. Now I'm going to talk about the Johnson and Bentley family. This family was loved by their community and was described as being a very close family. George and Edith Bentley worked hard their whole lives and raised a beautiful family with strong values. And when it came time to hang their hats from their work life, they decided to spend their days doing what they love most. And that was being in the outdoors, camping and boating. They were very close to their family and enjoyed every second spent together. Just amazing people. Bob Johnson, born June 25th, 1938, along with his twin sister, um, and they also had an older brother named Art. Bob was a hardworking family man and his co-workers thought highly of him. Bob loved his kids and wife very, very much and he adored adored the outdoors camping and being with his family he was an amazing father son brother husband cousin nephew all of it he was just an amazing man from everything i heard about him jackie johnson bob's wife of over 20 years known in the community to be a loving and amazing mother to their two children janet and karen jackie absolutely cherished photography as it meant capturing all her favorite family moments forever. Janet and Karen Johnson were loved by their teachers, their family. Everybody just loved these two little girls. They were such sweet, just so sweet and innocent little girls, just amazing. Janet's teacher said, no doubt Janet had a bright future ahead. The injustice is impossible to fathom. And Karen's teacher said that he as a father would like his own children to be just like her because Karen was so sweet and funny and all around an amazing little girl. The family's gravestone read, sadly missed by all who loved them. In death, they were never parted, ever remembered, ever loved. Sergeant Eastham hopes that Shearing is never released from prison and he even wrote and published a book in 1999 after he retired from the police force called The Seventh Shadow and it was about this case. I looked up this book hoping to get a copy but it was like $80 and I, I couldn't find a copy on Audible so unfortunately I did not get access but it is a very in-depth look at this case and maybe one day I can get my hands on it. 
there was a detail of this case that was so haunting when I read about it that I just it I just felt for the victims so much and it was when police went to search the campsite at Bear Creek where the the families were murdered there were two sticks by the fire that the little girls had used to roast marshmallows with on the fire and my heart just broke into a million pieces when i heard this and it's because it's it's so symbolic of how innocent and and young they were and what a great time they would have been having on a a camping trip with their family and it was just all taken away from them by a monster in the night so to david shearing i am giving the biggest hell no I think I have ever given thus far on my podcast. To David Shearing, I say a giant, huge, massive hell no. And may you never leave prison. Even after death, I hope your ghost is stuck in the walls for all eternity. That concludes this week's episode of the Camping Murder Tragedy. My heart... it breaks. It really goes out to the community and the family impacted by this terrible, horrific event. I will be posting on the Hell No True Crime Podcast Instagram and Facebook page about this case. So follow that or check it out if you already follow it. And um, if you like my podcast and you really want to help me out and help me grow, you can give me a five-star review and follow me on Spotify. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye, 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 bye.